because since we're talking about credential technicians, I'm going to give a piece of advice for credentialing. I've had you know many managers tell me why they can't, and I guess I would challenge them to say, why can't you? Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. This episode is generously sponsored by AmeriVet Veterinary Partners. Better business, happier vets, healthier pets. Today we are talking with another super smart guest, Leslie Boudreau. Thank you so much, Leslie. We are so fortunate to have you here and talk with you today. I'm really looking forward to getting into this interview with you. Thank you so much, Andrea and David. I am really looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, it's great. Welcome, welcome. We can't wait to get into this. So Leslie, I know you and I know each other fairly well. We've been uh, friends for quite a while. So without having to read your bio, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you've come, how that journey has put you where you are today. I think like a lot of people in veterinary medicine, I knew that I wanted to be in this profession from a really young age. And that was something that was just part of my life. Animals have always been part of my life. Um, However, getting to where I'm at today it has been a kind of a really long winding journey. It definitely was not a straight shot. Right. Uh, I didn't get here from a traditional path. I think that my story about how I got to where I'm at is, is kind of unique, maybe not uh, completely unheard of, but a little bit different. I, I think that's what's exciting because we get to hear all these different types of journeys. It's like you said, it's not just a straight shot. This is, you know, start a point A to point B, but all the different curves along the way. So tell us about that. Yeah. So starting in high school, I really was, how do I get into working in an animal hospital and took the opportunity with a regional occupational program class uh, called ROP. And that got me into a hospital as an intern and Mm -hmm. uh, cleaning kennels, you know, doing all of the grunt work, kind of Mm -hmm. learning what a hospital was all about. But I didn't see myself as a veterinarian after that experience. And I didn't really know that there was really any other track other than being a veterinarian. So that right. was kind of my my kind of first shock. I didn't really want to be a veterinarian, even though I thought I had wanted to. <laughs> yeah, eye opener. Right. Yeah. Um, but we did have at that time in the practice that I was at, which was actually fairly unique, um, was that we had a hospital full of or at that time called AHTs or animal health technicians in California. 
I liked what they did. <laughs> they uh, were working with the animals. They got to do all the fun procedures. Uh, and the doctors just talked to clients. And that was definitely <laughs> not in my roundhouse. <laughs> I secretly think the technicians do have all the fun for sure. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I looked at what they did. But I also came from a family that was very business oriented. Uh, my father had his own business um, from a, a very young age. Um, my mom was a business person. My sister had her own business. My brother had his own business. Wow, family of entrepreneurs for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't see a business side in veterinary medicine. Uh, it was probably once I got my first job in a practice that I realized there was a business side. As an intern, you don't see kind of the workings behind, um, mm -hmm. you know, the daily tasks. Sure. There wasn't really a clearly defined um, business position in a veterinary hospital. There was the owner's wife. There might be a bookkeeper. There might be, in a larger practice, an office manager. Um, but it was usually just the doctor running the show. And since I didn't yeah. want to be a doctor, I didn't uh, kind of take that avenue. So I started looking for things outside of veterinary medicine. I was a journalism major for a while. Uh, I actually thought I was going to be a Spanish teacher for a while. Wow. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Varied. <laughs> yep. It really took a, a kind of a winding path. And then also thought I would be a registered nurse and actually began my um, nursing college and then decided, boy, there was a lot of interaction with people that I did. Yeah, want. it's a lot of human stickiness. <laughs> <laughs> But I kept coming back to veterinary medicine. It was probably the early 80s when I first started to hear about certified veterinary practice managers. Hmm. And there was a group that had just formed and was beginning called the Veterinary Hospital Managers Association. And just that little group, right? No big deal. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little group. But I, you know, I started reading veterinary economics and realized there was a business side of, of veterinary medicine. And all along during my college career, I was still working in an animal hospital. I just never thought that that was going to be my career. I kept uh, looking outside of the industry um, for what would be my good fit. And then once I heard about this, heard about that there was this certified veterinary practice manager, there was a business professional in veterinary medicine, that was when I decided, hey, I really want to do that. But I had started um, after my kind of stint going to nursing school, I'm going to go into veterinary nursing instead, because that's really what I want to do. That's where I keep coming back to. That's where I'm working. I'm working in an animal hospital. And I had started to take on roles in the practice that required that I did talk to clients. And I needed that basis and background of the medicine and I needed some validation of my experience. I'd been in practice for a while, but I didn't have a degree. I didn't have, I, I knew a lot because I had a great teaching veterinarian who taught as he went. However, I needed the, that degree and that uh, licensure to give me some kind of street cred, right? With the clients that I knew what I was talking about and I could More like point out. personal validation? No, not personal validation, but more of the credi credibility of anybody could work in an animal hospital per se, but how do you know that they knew what they were talking about? How do you know what their experience was? I needed to validate the experience that mm -hmm. I had, and right. um, okay. that 
credibility came with mm-hmm. then deciding. Expertise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm going to go into put myself into technician school. And, and that was really my, why I wanted to do that, even though I was already starting kind of on a path towards management. Interesting. You also have a little bit of a few of those HR initials behind your RVT and your CVPM. You want to tell us a little bit about those? So even though early on in, in my life, I thought I would never, I thought I'd be the person working in a lab behind a microscope, didn't want to interact with people. I'm very much the introvert. You realize that in this profession and then as becoming a leader and a manager, it is all about the people. And so Absolutely. you, need, <laughs> you yeah. need to learn how to manage the people and lead the people. So my human resources certifications came from just this is a big portion of my daily time spent as, as a manager is managing the people. And you need to do that, especially in the state that I work in, California. <laughs> there are just, uh, you know, so many laws and so many guidelines and things that you could really get in trouble if you don't know what the heck you're doing. So that kind of came from needing as well that not only the training, but also the credibility of I know what I'm doing as an HR manager in a practice. I would like to ask you about the one itty bitty tiny lowercase letter uh, right after your RVT. You're an RVTG. Can you share with us the difference in the RVT designation and the difference between that and an RVTG? So AVMA and NAFTA, um, the National Association of Veterinary Technicians in America, have designated that if you are a graduate of a four-year veterinary technology program, you are a veterinary technologist. Some of the veterinary technology programs or the four-year bachelor's programs wanted a way to differentiate their graduates from somebody who graduated from a two-year associate program. Now I actually have graduated from both, so I initially graduated from a two-year program, uh, which gave me all of the background and the capability to take the, at the time, California um, Registered Veterinary Technician Examination. So California actually is one of the uh, few states that has what's called a alternate route program. And for me, the alternate route definitely had a reason for being. It um, allowed technicians who did not have a credential who were working in the field to get credentialed, but their educational background was was varied. And so if I was applying for a job as a registered veterinary technician in California, and without anybody knowing anything other than I have an RVT, there wouldn't be really any way to assess my educational background. And so I went on to get my bachelor's because I wanted to, again, differentiate myself to those people that had maybe gone through the alternate route. There isn't, you know, if you pass the RVT exam, which is now the VT&E, the Veterinary Technician National Examination, you know, an RVT is an RVT is an RVT, and, I, and my credential is no different than anybody else's. Uh, but I did want to differentiate my background and my educational history from somebody that um, potentially did not have any sort of a degree. So that was my reasoning for getting the bachelor's. Now, along the way, 
I also chose when I was doing my bachelor's to do an emphasis in uh, hospital management. So practice management oh, was cool. one of I the choices. Yeah, I didn't know they offered that. Interesting. Yep. So the yeah. college I went to, you could do strictly technical. You could do a combination of technical and management, or you could do management only. Now, the management only preparing you for the CVPM, so the textbooks for that program were also the same uh, reading list of the Certified Veterinary Practice Management Examination. So that was a really nice kind of... Segue. Yeah. Yeah, segue into that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've done quite a bit of learning and studying over the years, all their different credentials and certifications. Um, I'm sure you've had to go to a lot of CE, and I know that you are an avid reader. If you could pick one piece of information that was your favorite book, podcast, CE, a lecture, a class, something that left a lasting effect on you, what would that be? Ooh, so as you mentioned, I do love books, and I'm usually reading a few at a time. There are many that have influenced me. I would have to say that probably in recent past years, the book that really still stands out for me is uh, Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last. Yeah, great one. Yeah, I really, I love that book because it's so about servant leadership and it's about, you know, the old kind of boss or leader that many people imagine is, is very authoritarian and, you know, just leading down. And I am very much a team leader. I love to collaborate. I always feel like there's so much, there's so many bright minds and people with talents that are way more diverse than my own. And as a leader, if you know how to utilize all of the best talents and traits of the people you work with, it will just raise everybody up and raise, raise you up just by association. Well said. Amen, I think the other thing that yeah, I think the other thing that we know about some of this leadership stuff, right, is that the other way doesn't really work. The top down isn't, uh, you know, when you look at some organizational development literature and and books that are being produced, Simon Sinek and and some of these other guys that do this kind of research the top down doesn't work. You don't get increased productivity. You don't get increased right. engagement. You don't get increased motivation. Right. But what's interesting, right, you know, Andrea and Leslie is when you flip it, when you do the bottom up, when you do the servant leadership, when you say, I work for you guys, it's kind of the 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 virgin model, right, of take care of the employees and they take care of the clients, that it works. You get engagement, you get motivation, yes. you get productivity. Yes. yes. So it's fascinating. Absolutely. So Leslie, you are a veterinary technician, you're a registered veterinary technician and have a bachelor's degree as well. You're a practice manager and a CVPM, Certified Veterinary Practice Manager with some HR credentials. So you and I have a little bit of a parallel in that we didn't come up the ladder, so to speak, on the CSR side. We came up on the technician side and bridged a, a, you know, kind of cross the bridge over from, you know, the back to the front per se, right? Or from the clinical nursing side to the management side. And I know that being a technician and a manager has had a unique impact on my career because I do find that I'm more distanced from the CSR staff. Now, I've been a CSR, I've worked with CSRs, and I'm a leader just like you are. And so 
leadership, there's a lot of traits and, and techniques that I use that are universal to who I'm working with. But there is absolutely when I walk into a practice or take over a practice or consult or whatever it might be, where the technicians kind of go, oh, you get it, you know, you were a technician. How has being a veterinary technician at the beginning and your evolution from there till now as a practice manager, how has that duality influenced your career? Kind of the reason why I wanted to be a technician was to validate my medical experience that I had had early on. It also allows me now in my current role to relate to the veterinarians because really what I do now is more an administrator role. I have you know a leadership team who are working more directly with the team than I do, but I have a lot of my time is spent, um, you know, either with coaching or kind of an overseeing or helping the veterinarians be more productive. I think because I can come and understand medically what they are, what their challenges are, it helps me relate to the veterinarians better. It does help me relate to the technical staff because they know I have walked in their shoes I have done that position and the doctors understand that you know when I understand if I can understand their challenges of a difficult case or the, their thought process or the time that they need to perform some sort of task or treatment or diagnoses I think I can relate better to my entire team that way because I have that medical background it also helps me guide the practice from a uh, standard and protocol development using obviously the the good medical practices that I have been exposed to and that I want to continue to grow and develop and keep kind of raising the bar with best medical practice. Mm -hmm. So I think all of that as a technician, that has really helped me get to where I'm at, continue uh, for me to make those positive changes in my practice. That's awesome. I mean, we are in the business of veterinary medicine, aren't we? (laughs) So it makes sense that they're blended. And as a non-technician here, I definitely can see where it has hindered my success as a practice manager supporting my team where Leslie, you and David, you as well can say, you know, I, I come from that era, from that from that area where t- treatment room or surgery is is something that you know well. And although I was a veterinary assistant and a tech assistant and a surgical assistant, I was in the thick of it, do not have the experience and knowledge that the two of you do in that area. So when it comes to things of like me writing protocols or me having to to help that um, treatment staff or treatment team, I definitely will default to my RVTs and say, hey, I, I need a little bit of your input here. I need some guidance here. What's the best way and quite honestly, more current way of doing things? And there is a ton of buzz about this technician utilization. I love, Leslie, to hear your side about what is all of that about. What is this buzz of technician utilization? Don't we as a profession already fully utilize our support staff? Like, tell us about that. How I really got involved with the issue and the problem of vet- veterinary technician utilization, this is something that has has been an issue and a problem for technicians really all of the life of the profession. And this is a, actually a very young profession. We are about 100 years behind the nursing profession um, or the human nursing profession. 
it is a growing pain um, that the nursing, uh, human nursing profession went through. And at some point, I, I see a hopefully a very bright, sunny, positive future that we won't have this as an issue. But it is definitely going on now. And really what's happening is that because the the profession is very veterinarian-centric, and a lot of the laws are very veterinarian-centric, and the practice acts are veterinarian-centric, that although there is credentialing in almost 50 states, not quite, some sort of credentialing, um, the veterinary technician does not have a universal role. So that creates a set of challenges for each individual practice chooses how they are going to utilize technicians in their individual business. And so there are some examples of awesome utilization, but there are also things that are really at the polar spectrum behind that of a technician as a glorified holder or restrainer and not allowed to do any of the medical procedures, tasks, things that they have been trained on. So and that seems like such a waste overview. of talent and experience and knowledge and expertise that you as an RVT have gone through that training and that schooling and have the experience and the know-how to do some of these things. As coming from someone who's a, a non-RVT, that blows me away. Like you went to school for that. Why Why are hospitals, what's our obstacle? Like what's our hiccup that we don't use technicians the way that we should, that way, the way that we ought to, that you were trained to do? This problem um, has, there, there's many parts to this problem. The AVMA, um, American Veterinary Medical Association, this was such a huge issue and it kept coming up over and over that they actually formed a task force to evaluate what was going on with veterinary techni- technician utilization. And I was asked by the VHMA to represent the VHMA on that task force. It was composed of some AVMA members, fantastic technicians from kind of all facets, and veterinarians that teach at veterinary technician schools. It was just, it had a very wide range of people on this task force. And that's a huge honor, by the way. Wow, congratulations, right? Leslie. That's incredible. Amazing. Thank you. It was an honor, but it also came with, you know, definitely some trepidation because as a technician, but, you know, and a manager and being asked to be on this task force, I wanted to do a good job, right? I wanted to make sure sure that I was representing the technicians across the country, right? So this is a huge, a huge responsibility. And the task force has basically sunsetted at this point. We developed from the task force, was presented to the AVMA January of 2020. My goodness, this year has been a long year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it'll be a year this coming January. And so it was presented to the board of uh, the House of Delegates of the AVMA in January uh, by the task force leader. A lot of other things have happened since. There's this thing called COVID that happened. Little minor (laughs) hiccup little minor hiccup. So did kind of take a little bit of the momentum of the task force. It's not gone, certainly, but I think that's it's a little bit on the back burner. Our recommendations on the task force were presented to the um, House of Delegates, and there is a little bit of published um, information on it, but the entire report hasn't been presented. 
the reason why I'm bringing that up is the task force, one of the main things that the task force said is this is an ongoing issue. We cannot solve this problem just with a single task force. This is something that has to continue to be looked at. A whole huge range of problems were discussed and addressed that lead to veterinary technician um, underutilization. And there's so many moving parts to it that there's not one one reason that you can point to is that why veterinarians don't fully utilize their staff. I can talk about kind of an overview version of it. Um, however, the task force, since the, the report hasn't been published, I'm not allowed from a confidentiality standpoint to talk specifically about what the task force came up with other than what has already been published. So Right. On a thousand foot overview, can yeah. you give us maybe um, a, just a brief one or two or three major obstacles that you see preventing hospitals from using their technicians properly? You know, there's, again, credentialing is not the same across the country. And I always use the analogy of, you know, if you're a registered uh, human nurse and you're in California, you can become a registered nurse. A registered nurse in California is a registered nurse in Utah in Florida and in New York, it, there's the same understanding of what the background, the education, and what the license means from state to state. We do not have that as registered veterinary technicians. In fact, there's not even a single nomenclature or name for this job. Right. There's, we have different ones. We have LVTs and CVTs and RVTs. And there's, there's actually a fourth, which uh, I think only Tennessee is using. So because there's not even uh, a standardized title, that creates a problem. Um, because every state has its own practice act and potential list of job tasks for technicians that are either protected or not protected, but that technicians would do in those states, it does create an issue across the country with standardization. And so because of that, if a veterinarian goes to school, their, you know, their veterinary program, let's say, is in, I'll just pick Florida. And in Florida, there is no requirement for credentialing. So they may have in the veterinary teaching hospital, the veterinarians are doing the technician tasks because they're not being, they're not modeling a professional environment of a fully utilized veterinary technician. So they get out into practice and they don't have an expectation of what the technician can do. They think that they're the ones that need to do the blood draws and the x-rays and the bandaging and what have you, because that's the type of practice that was modeled in their veterinary school. Um, now, if you go to California or you go to another state that has specific job tasks for veterinary technicians and they're modeling that type of behavior, they're going to have a different expectation when they come out of practice or come out to practice mm -hmm. and will expect to go into practice with a very high level of experienced, um, you know, trained mm -hmm. technicians. Right. But it, it definitely varies from veterinarian to veterinarian, practice to practice and state to state. So I want to dig into this a little bit, Leslie, if you don't mind, and say, so So I think all of those points are really valid. And that's what a fascinating thing about kind of our profession, both on the manager side and on the technician side, that 
there, you know, there's so much variability across states and, and, you know, whether you have a state that does credential technicians or not, and a lot of managers don't even know what those laws are. But here's my question, and, and, you know, this is going to be a little bit hard hitting, but I'm curious as to your thoughts. So there's a lot of practices out there with very seasoned veterinarians, whether it's the owner or the associates that went to school many, many years ago and may have, you know, done that where they were students and did all the skills. And then now we're in practices with technicians and are still not utilizing them. So what is that about? And and the kind of follow-up to that is related to the, the job tasks that you mentioned. So I would say, you know, you and I are pretty uh, knowledgeable on this. So for example, you know, scaling teeth, and placing IV catheters and drawing blood is probably a universal skill of vet techs, whether you're in California or not, because it's it's not a more advanced skill like we have here in some of our practice acts. So why the heck aren't 50 out of 50 states letting their technicians do those things, you know, to, to the fullest extent? So, you know, that's my question to you is what is up with that? Why are these seasoned veterinarians or seasoned practice owners not letting their their technicians do that because if this is a universal problem then it's not just you know one of the one of the symptoms or whatever is not just what you mentioned which is kind of newer grads that don't know how to utilize tech so where are we at with this yeah and i i would say that again even seasoned veterinarians like you mentioned have this issue because it just depends on how things were modeled and then of course it does go back to a level of trust and maybe um, a bad experience or maybe a lack of, of looking for the, the type of, of credentialed technician. Uh, there's, gosh, there, I mean, we could just kind of tick off all of the different sure. reasons. Yeah. But it's really hard to say. But there have been studies and, and things that have been done, and there are some certain you know, reasons that are given over and over. The AVMA did a study on this as well. And one of the things is that the way a lot of the practice acts are written, that the veterinarian is responsible for every single person in the practice right. and have a liability. Right. And so although there's still practices that utilize their technicians, there's still a little bit of a fear factor with veterinarians that if that staff member screws up, I'm responsible for them. Yeah, they're so on the that hook. They're on the mm-hmm. hook. And in the human medical profession, the doctors are responsible for the doctors and right. what they do. Right. And the nurses are responsible for the nurses. They have their own licensing. They have their own disciplinary boards where the veterinary technicians are under the umbrella of a veterinarian. So that creates sometimes a, you know, you have to earn that trust of that veterinarian to do those skills that you were trained on. So that that is a big, you know, kind of a key problem. That makes sense. So this podcast is, we want it to be actionable. And so now you're speaking to a group of managers who have tuned in and we've kind of set the stage. We think that technician utilization is key. And not only do we just think it's key because of our, our, our opinions, but we know that it's key because there's a lot of good research that shows that utilizing staff keeps them you know, empowered and engaged and lowers turnover and everything. So how can practice managers who, as we all know, are if, if, you're, if you're an owner of a practice as a manager, you've got a little bit of a leg up, whether you're a co-owner or whatnot. But if you're a manager, we're middle management, right? We have an owner and we have staff. How can they work on getting their technicians to that full utilization like what are and we try to be very specific so what are you know three or five ways 
that are that are either from your experience or commonly suggested ways to use technicians more and, and practices miss that they're not using them in those areas well i think a practice manager there's there's actually an easy test so a veterinarian uh, is the only one allowed to diagnose prescribe or do surgery in the practice and so if anything else other than those three things is is being done by the veterinarian there is a opportunity for better utilization of staff. So I think just taking that as the basis and then um, NAFTA is actually developing a tool that you can go on and just kind of plug in all of what happens in your practice to this utilization tool to see where you rank. And that I think is, yep. Right, where can we get our hands on that? So this is being developed by NAFTA um, with kind of Ken Yagi, who's the president of NAFTA right now, leading that that push. But you don't even need the tool per se. You can literally go through everything that happens in the practice and just say, who's doing this, right? Who's doing this? And again, if the doctor's back there reading their own cytology, you know, tick, okay, that's a point against utilization because they don't need to be doing Mm -hmm. that. They have trained, Mm -hmm. they should have trained technical staff. Now, there are practices that do not have credential technician, and that's a whole nother level of issue and problem, and they'll give many reasons why they don't have a credential technician from they can't find one. Few and uh, far between, right? Right, yeah. So that in itself is we, we have to look at the model in human medicine of that there are different layers of professional people with that make it work, right? If if the old time version of, you know, the the doctor with his little black bag doing everything, going out on the house calls and performing everything, like that's not a model that works in modern day medicine with all of the tasks and things that have to be done. But even within human nursing, there's levels to that, right? So we not only have RNs, we have LVNs, and you have um, the terms yeah, uh, used. but and this and that. Respiratory yeah, RPAs, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. All of those job tasks are broken down to what kind of the, the least common denominator or the person who is best trained to do that within the law and, you know, you, you just have to push it down the ladder mm-hmm. because as you mentioned, David, and you're absolutely right, is there is a lot of research that shows that the better that a practice utilizes their staff, the more profitable they are. And the more profitable they are, the, you know, the happier everybody is and the better pay that technicians can receive. And there's just, it's a ripple effect. Veterinarians can be more productive. They can see more patients if their staff are doing the things that the staff should be doing. Right. And that profit is a word that makes managers' ears perk up, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Leslie, on a scale of one to 10, from one being least utilized and 10 being most, where do you rank your practice? And what are some of the things that your practice that you feel your technicians do that may not be universal, even in California, you know, things if, the, if you feel your technicians are highly utilized and what benefit does that provide to the practice having highly utilized technicians? What have you seen in, in your, in your experience? I think the best model is again, that, you know, the veterinarians are doing only those three things, diagnosing, prescribing, and doing surgery. I'd say my practice is like an eight and a half to a nine. I think there are things that 
our doctors can get away from doing that I can even utilize staff, not only just my credential technicians, but also my veterinary assistants. And we have, you know, certified veterinary assistants and my doctor's assistants and my, you know, regular veterinary assistants and the CSRs, like you can push those tasks down. And so some of the examples that my doctors still do that they really shouldn't be doing are things like making their own treatment plans, doing a lot of their discharge paperwork, right? Paperwork. Mm -hmm. Paperwork things. like they, Right, exactly. So as far as the technicians, they are generally utilized to the nth degree. Like they are um, definitely, you rarely see the doctors in the treatment room unless they're coming in to do an exam or they're coming uh, to prep for surgery, you know, scrub in. Um, They're in the doctor's office and they're doing those other things that they need to be doing. Every once in a while, we'll have a doctor that wants to read their own, you know, blood slide or, you know, whatever. And we kind of raise the eyebrows and look at them like go back (laughs) to your domain and, you know, stay out of the treatment room because you've got, you got people for that. So you talked a little bit about rewards to the practice and the benefit to the practice. As a manager, what rewards and how do you think that your staff feel and how are your staff rewarded when they're utilized properly? Like I'm assuming they're feeling rewarded. So tell me a little bit about how they feel when they're being utilized to a nine, like at your practice. There's been a statistic that has floated around in veterinary medicine for a long time, and that's that a technician lasts about five to seven years. And one of the main reasons, and when NAFTA does surveys, it's always in the top six of reasons, is that when they're underutilized, they feel undervalued and underappreciated. And right, that is exactly. a main reason for yeah. for burnout and for leaving the profession. Absolutely. And we're- so talked about them being few and far between earlier. And so burnout and plus they're leaving the profession that makes it a a double whammy for us to not be able to utilize them if we don't even have them, like you mentioned. If you are utilizing the staff and, you know, there's obviously other factors that go along with that. But, you know, I have such, I have very long-term employees. I have um, a gal who's been with us 34 years. Most of my technicians have been there upwards of 15 years. And so we're definitely wow. breaking that barrier and bubble of that five to seven year profession because if they're allowed to do the things that they were trained to do and that bring them joy because that's why they went into this profession is to help those animals and to yes exactly um, you know that that bedside nursing care you know then you're gonna have a happier team and when you have a team that has been there a long time and is well seasoned and you know you just have like a well-oiled machine you have you have great staff you're providing great medical care and you that just reverberates back on everything going on in the practice if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners today what would it be and why that because since we're talking about credential technicians i'm going to give a piece of advice for credentialing I've had you know many managers tell me why they can't, and I guess I would challenge them to say, why can't you? Um, why can't you find credentialed technicians? Take a look in the mirror, find out what's going on. Are, are you paying them well? Are you utilizing them well? Uh, I really hate the response is that I can't find them. Although it's they're definitely uh, in in a short supply. Mm-hmm. You need to grow them. You need to encourage them. You could take one of your employees, a good veterinary assistant, and mm-hmm. you know just 
say you're the one we're putting you through tech school we're going we believe in you we want you to be yes, that rule in our right. practice so i just would challenge everybody to find the reason that they can do it because uh, they, they definitely can and that goes along with paying them well because that's another factor we we in veterinary medicine should be paying our staff a living wage for sure yes yeah Hallelujah. i love Preach, that can-do attitude <laughs> So Leslie, I would like to switch gears with you a little bit and talk with you. I know we have several times before and laughed about those stories. And you know what I mean, those stories that we just can't make up. We've all had those encounters either with a client or an employee or even a practice owner where our eyes pop out of our head, our chin hits the ground, almost surreal moments where you just palm to the forehead, no freaking way this just happened. You cannot make this shit up. Pinch me. Is this really happening? No stinking way this just happened. Can you tell me about a time that just made you go, no way I could never ever in a million years make this shit up? (laughs) I love that because... (laughs) There's, there's so many of the crazy things that I've experienced as a practice manager. I've been in the field for over 35 years, and I'd say that the majority of the times that I get that head slap, they've been all centered around people, and maybe more specifically the hiring and the firing of people. I've always prided myself, though, on keeping a pretty reasonable to low rate of turnover, and I think I make good hiring decisions, and I provide a you know, a good work culture and a work environment. But I have to say that I there's one memory that really kind of sticks out in my mind and it was centered around a phone interview. It's really vividly etched in my memory. And kind of to set it up, the story is that a local uh, manager colleague provided a referral to all the managers in our managers group. And she said she had a great candidate for a client service rep uh, position. And she knew this person and they were looking for a position and lots of good experiences. And I went, great, you know. And so I thought, oh, I'm gonna give this person a call and conduct a phone interview and see if I can get her in. uh, But little did I know that also one of uh, my other friends in the manager's group saw the same thing. And she ended up actually uh, reaching out to the person and uh, we, we come to find out later that we both interviewed this person on the same day. But the the reason the story is memorable is not that we were both competing for an applicant, but it's how the interview turned into an unexpected just circus of craziness. But we both handled it in two completely different ways. So the interview started off fairly normal. You know, the regular chit chat. What are you looking for? What do you know about my practice? Sure, right. And kind of the usual questions. But then the bottom kind of dropped out of the interview when I asked her why she had left her last veterinary practice. I almost, even now, (laughs) I just remember asking that question, expecting a normal, regular answer. And you've, you know, you've asked this question (laughs) regularly. But she proceeded to verbal vomit a story that not only was she fired, but she was fired for stealing controlled drugs from her last employer a veterinarian and she oh, had just wow. she had just gotten out of jail and she was oh on my pro- gosh she was on probation for this situation 
And almost initially, I kind of thought, well, maybe this is kind of a joke and she's being sarcastic. But then the more she kept talking, I realized that this was, she was absolutely serious. And I have to say, you know, just looking at today and the interviews I've done in the last few weeks, I'm really thankful that this interview took place before Zoom meetings, before Skype, and before FaceTime, because my mouth was probably dropped to my, you know, (laughs) my chest or my toes, you know, I'm just sitting there with my mouth open. And my eyebrows were probably so high. And I probably had that, you know, the emoji of the shocked little emoji guy and he's just with his eyes bugging out. And then that would have been me. (laughs) I was just so stunned to hear this story. And I really just wanted desperately to get the heck off the phone. I I was still in the back of my mind. Is this person pranking me? Like, it just was so crazy. Yeah, you got punked. We finally got to the point where I could uh, interject and uh, had some general closing statement and I got off the phone and just shocked and I yeah. I, wow. I, ju- I just had never had somebody interview for a position that you'd have zero chance of getting in a veterinary hospital after what this person did but kind of fast forward to when I found out that my colleague had interviewed her it was about a week or so later and we found out because I said yeah I interviewed a, a drug thief and she goes me too And then when I found out how she handled it, I realized I kind of need to up my interviewing game. I was totally shocked, but I think I I did learn something through this is my friend and her name's Sarah. And I know you know her. She's a a practice manager that I'm I'm very um, friendly with. But she turned the interview. She had the exact same initial experience as me and heard the exact same story. But she turned it into a like a life lesson job coaching conversation with this person and probably spent another 30 minutes on the phone with them. You know, she really did the person a big favor, in my opinion. Like she encouraged her to find a new line of work and maybe yes. away from, away from controlled great. drugs, right? There is multiple ways to handle that, but you're in practice for so long and you really think you've heard it all and then somebody throws that back at you So in the tradition of this podcast, we wrap it up with a rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. I'm just going to say that failures are an opportunity to learn. And I have done a lot of learning. Powerful. Tell me about your proudest moment. I had actually, I I was asked this question recently. And you know, my daughter uh, is in veterinary technician school. And I think that that she she is going to follow in my footsteps. I'm not sure where that will lead her to, but I think that's my proudest moment right now. That's awesome. Why veterinary medicine? What do you just love about our profession? Uh, how can you not enjoy going to work and petting an animal? Like that just has to be the best job ever. Oh, right, love I totally agree. <laughs> How do you balance work and life, and do you experience manager guilt in that balance? Uh, I'm not good at balancing work and life. Andrea can definitely tell you that. Uh, I definitely have too much work and a, a lot less life. I don't, I don't really have manager guilt per se. I probably have more home guilt. That thankfully, my you know, I, my kids and my uh, family are very self-sufficient. Uh, but I know I need to do a better job at that. 
And what keeps you up at night, stresses you out, or causes you anxiety as a practice manager? I don't have any problem sleeping ever. I can fall asleep at the drop of a hat. But I think the one thing that kind of will eat at me, the bad reviews that are unwarranted and that aspect of social media I just detest. And last, what gets you up in the morning? Right now it has to be my my 15 and a half year old dog. <laughs> there is never a day that I don't want to go in, even if I know I'm facing some challenges. This is definitely has been the profession um, that is just a part of my, my life and my heart. I love going to work. Well, Leslie, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so Thank you. much for Thank coming you. on the podcast. Thank you. Love it. Be well. Be safe. Thank you guys for inviting me. I've really enjoyed our time talking today. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. Social media management and website design by Dog Days Consultant. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrew Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.